0: This week, the lab that hopes to transform our indoor environments.
1: I'll be very surprised if this, if this lab doesn't actually change uh, health and wellness in the United States uh, and even the world.
0: Plus, the birds,
2: the bees and the epigenetics of making a new life.
3: One area where we don't have a lot of understanding at the moment is the first few events that lead to the formation of a new individual.
0: And meet the latest speech synthesizer, WaveNet.
1: The avocado is a pear-shaped fruit with leathery skin.
0: This is The Nature Podcast for September the 15th, 2016. I'm Kerry Smith.
2: And I'm Adam Levy.
0: First up this week, Adam finds out how researchers are trying to learn about the ideal indoor conditions.
2: Step inside the well-living lab and you could be forgiven for thinking you've walked into a normal office. But this isn't a normal office. This is Brent Bauer's experiment.
1: We can actually take our 6,000 square feet and change it into a bunch of open offices. We can create hotel rooms, we can create apartments...
2: Brent can customise pretty much any aspect of the space.
1: Take the lighting. Uh, We can manipulate the light intensity. Uh, We can block out natural light with shade. Uh, We can change light colour. He wants to know
2: how changes in the indoor environment affect our health. So we can raise temperature, we can lower
1: temperature, change humidity. And who doesn't love a bit of ambient sound? Uh, White noise, background noise, traffic sounds. Uh, The list is almost endless.
2: Most people in industrialised countries spend at least 90% of their time indoors. And so it should come as no surprise that our indoor environments can have profound effects on our health and well-being. Light, for example, can affect mood and sleep patterns. Excessive noise may contribute to heart disease. But finding out exactly how all the different variables act and interact requires a finely tunable environment. And so, the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota has teamed up with real estate company Delos to create exactly that. Brent Bauer, who we just heard from, is medical director of the Well Living Lab. But what's he hoping the lab will actually teach him?
1: We have a cohort of uh, participants in there now who are uh, brought their workstations basically from where they work in Mayo Clinic and they brought them into our lab. So they're they're doing their same work, the same computers, everything. But now they're in our environment where we can actually manipulate the light, the sound, the uh, desk positions, and so forth. So the first round here is really just confirming, A, what we already sort of know, but B, uh, that we can actually use the lab the way we think we can. And that sets us up now for the the, the fun stuff or the, you know, I've described this as a Uh, at least to me, kind of a kid in the candy store opportunity, because now we can start to dive into really deep questions, not just lighting and not just sound, but even how we uh, can manipulate the space in a way that might help people be more active during the day. And so now we have almost an endless list of things we can bring into that space, but we can hold all the other variables stable. And I think pretty quickly help inform not just science, but consumers because I think everybody's very anxious to get better information about what should I invest in for my house? Is, is this going to help my children stay healthier? Can it reduce their asthma? Uh, is this air filter better than that one?
2: Trying to imagine the setup a bit better. Unfortunately, what I'm thinking of is the Truman Show. Um, have you seen the Truman Show?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. So I think there's ways we can gather data, certainly wearing the uh, Uh, the bands on their hands to give us their biometric data, that doesn't feel intrusive. So really, I think the only place where people get a little nervous is where we say, hey, we're going to have some cameras in here. And people who see the value proposition of why this data is so critical have kind of shrugged it off and haven't been really bothered by it at all. So I think the creepy factor will really be a fairly small challenge because we don't really need that much camera data.
2: What are the most out-there ways in which you want to mess with the environment?
1: we're looking at almost every aspect of the the human participants, including their microbiome. So we're actually looking at their intestinal flora uh, to see if, uh, first of all, just the change in environment from their normal environment to our uh, probably uh, unique and probably uh, uh, different microbiome existing here than was in their previous workspace. So even how do we influence at the gut level the bacteria living in their colons?
2: everything we talk about there seem to be kind of 10 things that you could do with that
1: well this is what we call drinking from the fire hose (laughs) so it's almost like an endless list of possibilities just constrained by the fact that we have the space we have Uh, because i'm first and foremost a physician and i care for patients and secondly i'm also a a father and i have children i want them to be healthy so i get pretty excited when somebody shows me something now i really want to be part of that solution i want to be part of the team that allows all of us to be healthier in our homes, in our workplaces. I'll be very surprised if this, if this lab doesn't actually change uh, health and wellness in the United States uh, and even the world, because I think it's just the perfect time to ask these questions.
2: That was Brent Bauer, who's at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, U.S. For a peek inside the Well Living Lab, head to nature.com forward slash news, where there's a feature all about it.
0: Coming up later, the research highlights take on power dressing and beer yeast genetics, a winning combination.
2: First, though, a creation story. Once upon a time when your life was just beginning, you consisted of one single cell. All your other cells came from that one cell. Kerry has been looking into the very first genomic manoeuvres that helped you become you.
0: Biologist Wei Jie lives in Beijing and works at Tsinghua University. He's married with two daughters. And when it comes to his daughters, he and his wife have a certain friendly disagreement.
4: I always argue with my wife how much I contribute to my daughters and how much she did. and Because when you look at my daughters, uh, I think they look more like my wife. Uh, at least genetically, we contribute equally. But then, uh, besides DNA, there's something else that can potentially be transmitted from parents to kids, too. That's something? Uh, That's called epigenetics.
0: Epigenetic processes can change gene expression without the actual DNA sequence changing. Wei Zhe is interested in epigenetics as a father and as a geneticist, and he's especially interested in the earliest stages of development. Lots of scientists are, because nobody has a good list of the epigenetic changes that accompany the making of a new genome, a new embryo. Here's biologist Juanma Vakerisas, who's written a comment piece about the research.
3: One area where we don't have a lot of understanding at the moment is the early stages of differentiation. Essentially, after fertilization, there's going to be the first few events that lead to the formation of a new individual.
0: Scientists do know which genes end up being expressed a little later on. But the very first set of genes that clicks on? It's uh, unknown at the moment. What we do know is that during this time, these two highly specialised cells, the egg and the sperm, have to ditch their previous identities and come together as one to make a whole new entity. Juanma has an analogy for what happens here.
3: What the unfertilized egg and the sperm are doing is essentially they're just they're like an orchestra tuning into an A at the beginning of a of a function. Then after the orchestra is tuned, they're gonna go silent and they're they're not gonna start playing straight away. At some point, once fertilization happens, then the orchestra will start playing um, the piece that they're gonna go and play. But not all instruments are going to start playing at the same time.
0: All of this is quite impressive, just like a polished concert orchestra playing to an audience. But actually, it's even harder than their job. It's also as if the instruments first had to be built from the old parts of other instruments and then the concert performed. The new embryo has to take an egg and a sperm and use their material to make all the body's cell types. This trick is really special and scientists really want to learn more about how it works. Here's co-author of the comment article, Maria Elena Torres Padilla.
5: The, The very early embryo has a property, what we call totipotency, and that is simply the capacity of a cell to give rise to a full new organism on its own. So I think that anything that we can learn about the molecular configuration of the early embryo will actually help us to understand how these cells are regulated or how they exist and how they can be maintained.
0: Three teams writing separately this week describe aspects of this tumultuous process. But before they could do that, they first had to design a new method for working with these special early-stage cells and embryos. Here's Vakarizas again.
3: Uh, If you want to use normal genomic techniques, what's going to happen is that you're going to need a significant amount of starting material. The number of cells usually, it's uh, between 100,000 to a million cells uh, as starting material.
0: Whereas with a newly formed zygote, The cell that first forms when sperm and egg come together. Well, it's literally just one cell, rather than the thousands or millions usually used. So the groups all developed super sensitive techniques that allowed them to get genomic information out of tiny amounts of material. They were working with mice. And they were looking at a class of proteins called histones.
5: Which help the DNA to fold or unfold.
0: So if you can see what the histones are doing at these early stages, you can see how genes are being unfurled for use or packed away for storage. Remember, one question that Xie's team had is this: Does any epigenetic information from parents make it through to the next
4: generation? What we found is those his modifications uh, could be transmitted to uh, the next generation from parents. Uh, that's a good news. The bad news, uh, at least to me, is those from father are rapidly uh, removed. So what has been transmitted, uh, at least a very ma- the majority of them, is from mother. So once again, <laughs> I proved my wife did more than me.
0: The mother's marks last a bit longer, so for a while the inherited histone patterns are affecting the epigenome of the embryo, but
4: ultimately they're replaced too by the embryo's own set. The embryo is trying to establish its own identity. so it- it removes uh, a large portion of the histone marks from parents, and then it starts to build up its own.
0: But the fact that the marks persist in this key window of early development suggests that the parents do have some impact on the epigenome of their offspring. One other surprise had to do with the function of some of these histone marks. There's this one histone that researchers know usually turns genes on wherever it appears. But when they looked at what it was doing in these early cells, It was doing the complete opposite and turning them off instead.
4: This is the beauty of this scientific research. It it always proves us wrong. (laughs) Why would this happen? Yeah, so that's definitely a great question. Uh, We we, we have uh, no clues at this moment.
0: Unrewarding perhaps, but this just goes to show how little we still understand about this period of life. Learning more, though, could help us one day understand more about fertility. All this change is happening in the first few days after fertilisation. And then comes a big hurdle. The embryo has to implant. Maybe something about this early stage of development is helping some embryos implant without a hitch and preventing others from doing so.
5: Most of the couples that are in fertile, the, the bottleneck is really implantation because um, you know something around 40 to 50% of the embryos do not implant in, in humans. So uh, everything that we know that happens during this period will certainly help us to understand why so many embryos are failing at implantation state in humans.
0: And for Wei Xie, there's one more compelling reason to go on with this project.
4: You know, part of the job, the reason I, I want to do it is I want to try to you know, prove to my wife I still did something.
0: That was Wei Xie, who's at Tsinghua University in Beijing. His team produced one of the three papers appearing online in Nature this week. The other papers are from the labs of Bing Ren and Xiaorong Gao. You also heard from the two authors of the News and Views article, Juanma Vaquerisas and Maria Elena Torres Padilla. Find all the papers and the News and Views at nature.com. Stay
2: tuned for the latest from Google-owned company DeepMind, Remember they devised an AI that could beat the world's best Go player? Well, now they've published an attempt at a text-to-speech synthesizer. Before that though, here are the research highlights with Cory Locke in Boston.
6: Researchers have created a lightweight fabric that harvests energy from both the sun and from movement to power electronic devices. The team wove the fabric using wool fibers and two types of polymer wire. One converts sunlight into electricity, and the other turns mechanical energy, such as from walking or blowing wind, into power. The thin, flexible fabric could charge a mobile phone and power a wristwatch. This kind of fabric could be incorporated into wearable electronics. The study was published in the journal Nature Energy. The long history of beer brewing can be found etched in the genomes of brewer's yeast. Researchers in Belgium sequenced and analyzed the genomes of more than 150 strains of yeast used to make beer, other drinks, and bread. They found evidence that people began domesticating beer yeast in the late 16th or early 17th century. This was a time when beer making in Europe moved from homes to pubs and monasteries. The team also found distinct families of yeast used for different beverages such as wine and sake. The researchers then use the genomic information to make their own strain of yeast incapable of producing a chemical that gives beer an unsavory, smoky flavor. You can find the study in the journal Cell.
0: And there's more on beer genetics in a feature that Ewan wrote on the 28th of July this year. Check out the relevant podcast episode for more. Hey, before we move on, a quick thank you to
2: all who have sent their feedback on the show. Jochen Beninga likes to listen while he's in the car and when he's jogging in the woods and even calls it a research tool. Very flattering.
0: And Jean-Louis Desal, who's a cognitive scientist and AI researcher, says he hasn't missed an episode since the podcast was created. I think even I have missed a couple, so Jean-Louis, you've beaten my record. Hope you didn't mind the sci-fi episode last week, even though you said it's not really your thing.
2: Let us know what you think on email, podcast at nature.com, or on Twitter, at naturepodcast, or on iTunes. You can leave us a review or some gold stars. We love a gold star. We really are as easy to please as kids at a kindergarten.
0: Onwards now. Shortly, it's the news featuring Richard Van Norden and a gaggle of giraffes. But first, Noah Baker has been chatting up a computer programme, one from Google-owned artificial intelligence company DeepMind.
7: Yeah, remember them? So a few months back, they created an AI which mastered the ancient Chinese board game Go. And before that, they made an AI which could learn to play Atari games. And now they've turned their attention to something a bit different, which is speech synthesis.
0: This is the kind of thing you'd find doing train announcements or in your phone's personal assistant.
7: Yeah, exactly. Now, in the past, most speech synthesis programmes have worked by combining together thousands of recorded chunks of sound, which are extracted from recorded scripts, often featuring sentences designed to be rich in different types of sounds. So, for example, earlier on, I asked you to record this sentence.
0: An internet business that fools unsuspecting cats. Yes, you did, and I said those words unquestionably and without
7: fact-checking. Then I cut the sounds out and generated some new speech. Isn't that fun? (laughs) It's like I'm in the room. That's called concatenative speech synthesis, and by painstakingly recording and cataloguing enough samples, scientists have been able to generate pretty realistic-sounding speech, like these samples from the DeepMind blog.
6: The Blue Lagoon is a 1980 American romance and adventure film directed by Randall Kleiser.
7: The problem is that the process isn't very flexible. Modifying the voice, for example, so changing the tone or emotion of the speaker is difficult to do without recording a whole new database of sounds. To get around that, scientists use an approach called parametric speech synthesis. Now, here, instead of recording sounds, all the key audio parameters, things like volume and frequency, are parameters in a computer model, which can artificially generate the sounds. Because scientists can tweak these input parameters at will, parametric speech synthesizers are a lot more flexible than concatenative ones, but they result in much less human-sounding speech, at least in syllabic languages like English.
6: The Blue Lagoon is a 1980 American romance and adventure film directed by Randall Kleiser. So which one do DeepMind use then?
7: Well, neither. They wanted to get the best of both worlds, and they've come up with a new program called WaveNet. Now, WaveNet is called a convolutional neural network, a kind of AI designed to work in a similar way to the human brain. What WaveNet does is deconstruct raw audio waveforms, analysing thousands upon thousands of samples every second, and learns to predict what should come next based on what's come before. Scientists can then sample WaveNet's neural network to get it to generate totally synthetic speech based on what it's learnt. It sounds a bit like this.
6: The Blue Lagoon is a 1980 American romance and adventure film directed by Randall Kleiser.
0: That is a lot better, but I've got something else to say about that. Isn't that fun? So then what? You feed it text and it works out what it sounds like?
7: Yeah, but in order for Wavenet to know what sounds to make when, scientists also feed in text sequences which link to the sounds that it's learning. That way Wavenet can learn to associate text with the sound and so knows how to translate the text into speech once its training is done. Now, they did actually also try training it without the text and when they do that, something bizarre happens.
1: Wow,
0: it's like listening to some kind of
7: uh, snotty Dutch lady who's confused. Yeah, Wavenet is still trying to speak, but it doesn't know what to say, so it just sort of babbles. It's sort of like it's learned to speak, but it hasn't yet learned any languages. Also, because Wavenet analyzes raw audio, it can learn more than just speech. In theory, it can learn any kind of audio. So after training on classical piano music, for example, with no reference material, it generated the same kind of babbling, but this time it was musical babbling.
0: That is very cool. I wonder if that's how, like, Mozart's first compositions went.
7: I imagine probably not. There are fewer neural nets, apart from Mozart's own neural net brain.
0: So when do we get to have WaveNet in our smartphone?
7: Well, exactly how and when this kind of technology could be used is unclear, and researchers from DeepMind were unavailable to talk to us when we contacted them to ask about this new programme.
0: So those of us with voices or who compose music are probably safe in our jobs for now. Thanks, Noah. And if you do hear from DeepMind via telepathy or carrier pigeon, nature will surely follow up. In the meantime, check out deepmind.com slash blog to read the results for yourself. I'm off to set up my new entrepreneurial idea, an internet business that fools unsuspecting cats. Now it's
2: time for the news chat and Richard Van Norden joins us in the studio. Hi, Richard. Hi, Adam. So the first story this week is looking at people who have survived Ebola but may still
8: be carrying it in some way. Yes, scientists are looking at Ebola survivors. The outbreak has fortunately died down in West Africa and they're finding some interesting unknown facts about how long Ebola can survive in the bodies of people who catch it. So is there any risk if Ebola is still in the body that it can actually be transmitted to other people? It's been known that the virus can persist in people who've recovered from the infection. But the, the outbreak is basically changing the way we're thinking about life after Ebola. The first thing that people are finding is, well, we already knew that the Ebola virus can be transmitted in semen for about three months. But now they're finding up to 18 months after someone's caught the virus, it can be transmitted. and. The person we talked to, Mary Choi, an epidemiologist there, says the virus probably lasts longer than 18 months. So, I mean, the takeaway from this finding is that survivors should get semen testing as part of their services. And, and the, the advice is that survivors should use condoms or abstain from sex until they get two negative tests. Um, obviously, you've got to be sensitive in communicating these kinds of findings because life is pretty difficult already for people who've survived from Ebola. And there are instances of transmission, Um, in one case a man who transmitted the virus to a sexual partner 17 months after recovering from his infection. But these are still very, very rare events. But it's
2: not just semen from my understanding that there's concern about, there's also a concern over breast milk.
8: Yes, there's a team in Hamburg, Germany, who are studying Ebola survivors. They're going to publish the first report of a person without any obvious Ebola symptoms infecting another person. It was a seemingly healthy mother in Guinea who passed the virus to her nine-month-old daughter in breast milk. And the child unfortunately died from the infection in August last year. And... Another study at the Antwerp meeting suggests that some people who became infected during the outbreak were never actually detected at all, completely asymptomatic. Uh, One team tracked 80 people who had contact with Ebola patients in Guinea, didn't become noticeably ill, yet some 20% of these contacts developed immune responses that could neutralise the virus, and that suggests that they contracted mild forms of the infection. So these studies are all suggesting there's kind of asymptomatic Ebola is more common than scientists had suspected and at least in one case perhaps can be passed on to others. So is this something that is just informative, that it's useful for us to know? It's
2: not really something that people are are worried about sparking new outbreaks?
8: No, this is a very rare kind of thing. It's it's just that we haven't had large Ebola outbreaks as large as this before. So now we're learning much more about the late stage manifestations of this disease and, and how long it can persist.
2: Our second story this week is also a surprise coming out of the African continent, but this time relating to
8: giraffes. We need to rewrite the textbooks. If you thought there was just one species of giraffe, there are actually four, a genetic analysis suggests. And, and these giraffes, astonishingly, are as distinct from one another as the brown bear is from the polar bear, according to this genetic analysis, uh, even though it's it's been quite hard to detect that they are different species just by looking at their coats and and where they live. Where does this change in definition come from? How did we not notice there these four different giraffes? We already split giraffes into subspecies on the basis of their coat patterns and so on. Um, And the idea of splitting them into different lineages is that they don't interbreed in the wild and that's quite hard to to figure out. They're very mobile and and they probably could interbreed. So what this new study has done, which is from geneticists at Goethe University in Frankfurt, they tracked the distribution of seven specific gene sequences in DNA from skin biopsies from 190 giraffes. And they also looked at um, mitochondrial DNA. And they basically found four distinct patterns that strongly suggest separate species, they've um, diverged from each other because they haven't interbred in the past. Do we know why these different species don't interbreed? It's kind of amazing because giraffes range over wide areas and why didn't they interbreed? That's kind of the million dollar question, says Axel Janker, who's the lead author of the study, and he just speculates that there's some rivers or physical barriers that in the past kept them apart long enough for them to become species that now don't interbreed. Does this kind of finding affect how we conserve, well, now, the four different giraffe species? Yeah, well, previously we thought we had about 80,000 giraffes today. Uh, But if you think that there are four species, well, you've got two of them. The northern and reticulated giraffe have fewer than 10,000 individuals, so suddenly... You're looking at a species that has far fewer individuals than you'd thought. This actually uh, also happened to African elephants. They were classed as a single species until a 2010 genetic study. Now we think there are two: forest elephants and savanna elephants. But the International Union for Conservation of Nature, which is kind of the official bible of of, um, of species, so if, if you hear that a species is threatened, it usually means it's on the IUCN's red list as threatened. It still treats these elephants as one species um, because of concerns that kind of splitting them into two would place hybrid elephants into a kind of conservation limbo, neither neither one nor the other. And it's not clear whether this study about giraffes will have any impact on giraffe conservation. How will the RUCN react? Will there be giraffes that actually do have some kind of hybrid DNA and what should we do about them? So it's not obvious how that knowledge is going to guide animal protection but certainly the scientists who discovered this are saying we need to protect these species the most immediate effects are probably going to be found in zoos that trade giraffes for breeding purposes because zookeepers can obviously now make more appropriate matches now that they they know there are four species to look at
2: well i look forward to seeing how these four different giraffes get on in the future richard thank you very much for joining us for all those stories and more head over to nature.com forward slash news
0: and thank you for listening. We'll be back next week at the same time. Later this week, we've got a rebroadcast episode of The past cast waiting to drop, and our regular Futures short story will be making its way to you soon as well.
2: Over on the Nature Video channel, a tale of clever crows and their twiggy tools. That's at youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. I'm Adam Levy.
0: And I'm Kerry Smith.